scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Please be seated. Good morning again. Happy Advent. Glad to uh, see you all. Glad to be a part of this season with you. Um, we've been walking through a series called, uh, well, in which we've looked at all of the unique passages in Luke. Obviously, we have four Gospels and... Uh, there is a lot of overlap. They're written by four different people, but uh, they don't all have the exact same stories told in the exact same way. And we've been in a series in the book of Luke in which we look at those stories that he uniquely tells. And uh, that is a nice segue into uh, this season of Advent here because Luke, right at the beginning, has some nice uh, stories of the coming of Jesus. Um, that's what we're going to look at today. As Derek said, Advent is a season of, of longing, uh, of expectancy. Uh, it's something that we, as a culture, have a hard time doing. I don't know about you, but, but the idea of, of sitting still with a quiet heart is, is not a reality that seems overtly prevalent to us anymore. Uh, we're very busy, we're distracted, our hearts are restless. Um, and so I'm grateful for this season in which we can sort of pause and uh, reorient ourselves uh, to see what's true uh, and to see the glory of this truth. Um, let me pray before I go any further, and then we'll hear from God's Word. Father, thank you for bursting in. Thank you for... Uh, your people that you have awakened, that you have revealed yourself to. Thank you that as we gather, we don't gather in vain. We don't gather uh, alone apart from you, but we gather together uh, in worship of you, knowing that you are with us, that you are here, that you are working in our lives, that you have revealed yourself, that you are working in the world and that we can come and, and bring burdens and, and hear from you, and that you will 
build us up and encourage us and remind us who you are and what it means to long, to wait, to hear from you, to see you, to be intentional about that. So, Lord, help us instruct sinners in the way. Help me. You know that I need your help. So, may I be a mouthpiece of you to these people and nothing more. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you may or may not be familiar that he starts out with uh, sort of this historical type delivery. Um, he's, he's compiled this Gospel of Luke. Um, we're not entirely sure. We think it might be a guy named Theophilus. Uh, it could also be a general term used to describe uh, the people of God in general. I, I happen to lean towards um, Theophilus. I don't have a good reason for that, but uh, in any event, he says, Most excellent Theophilus, I thought it was good uh, that I should put together account for you of everything that happened. Um, so right off the bat, we get this sense that, that Luke is trying to tell us something historical here that has actually happened in reality, and, and he doesn't merely want to gloss over it Uh, This is not uh, a fable. It's a historical account in which he says, this is really important. And so I wanted to basically become an investigative journalist and put this account together and deliver it to you so that you might know that it is true. By the way, if anybody kills a fly today, you get extra favor from God because they have been destroying me all morning. We don't actually teach that you get favor from God for doing things, so I was kidding. But anyways, we hope to see three things in the text this morning. One, that that God indeed works in the world. Two, how God works in the world. And three, God's plan for the world. So first, God God works in the world, or he is working in the world. We see uh, this scene here in which Mary is basically just going about her business and the sovereign God of the universe decides to send his angel Gabriel to her and burst in on the scene and announce to her this glorious, hard-to-believe reality. And we need to see that God himself initiates this interaction with Mary. It does not start with her, it starts with him. It starts with God. He's not responding to something in particular that she prayed. Uh, He's not replying to a question and or request that she had. God is bursting onto the scene in this woman's life like he does in our lives. This is not an isolated incident either. As we look through the pages of Scripture, we see for thousands of years that God has made it a practice to invade human reality, so to speak. In the very beginning, the first thing that God does when Adam and Eve fall and and the the relationship between God and human beings is fractured, God does something about it. He says, Adam, where are you? He does not sit back indifferently and say, I created this and you messed it up, so be on your way. I will wash my hands of the scenario. No, he does something about it. And he gives us this glorious promise which finds its fulfillment in the life of Jesus, and that's in Genesis 3.15. It's commonly referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. It means the first gospel. We see this shadow in seed form of good news 
that, that God is going to perform. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This basically says that the promise, this is the first promise of a Messiah to come that will destroy Satan. Then we see not long after God bursts in and sees Noah, the world is wicked, it's a total disaster. And again, he, he, he does not sit in indifference towards the matter and uh, he gives Noah and the rest of the world an opportunity to be rescued from this brokenness. Not long later, we see a guy by the name of Abraham who's living in a land, not worshiping God. He's a pagan guy, and, and God goes to him and, and says, uh, hey, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through your seed. Um, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. He makes a covenant with him. Then he, he has... And he and his wife have this impossible birth to a son named Isaac who's going to carry on the promise. Then later we see the calling of Moses in which God invades reality and then calls Moses to himself so that he can lead the people of Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And over and over and over again we see God invading reality. This goes on for thousands of years of redemptive history. We see a continual and relentless pursuit of God towards his people. The entire Bible is essentially this story. Human beings messing things up, and the sovereign God of the universe running after us, invading our reality, bursting into our lives with good news. And there's a build-up, a perpetual movement towards hope, a perennial pursuit, a present God. And God's promise to Mary is yet another act of God towards his people. Indeed, it's, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of this proto-evangelion. He's saying that Redeemer, thousands of years ago that I promised you, is here. And Mary, you are going to conceive him, and you are going to carry him, and you are going to give birth to him, and he will rescue his people. So what do, we, what do we learn first about this? First, that uh, deism is false. I don't know if you're familiar with the theological concept of deism. It's basically that uh, there is a supreme creator, and that creator created the world and everything in it, and then just kind of took, took a step back and took his hands off and said, here you go, you know, I made you, and it's not really super involved with us, and doesn't participate with us or lead us or really care all that much about what is happening here on earth because perhaps he or she has something better to be doing. It's not the picture that we get at all. God actually sends an angel from heaven to Mary to deliver a specific message in time to her. Uh, not only does this tell us that he's working, but, but that he actually cares enough to involve us in this work. Proverbs 16.33 also upends this reality that there's just a general God who's generally uninvolved. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is a sovereign creator, and he's a sovereign ruler, and he rules over all things, and he's deeply involved in every single thing that happens. Not even a, a sparrow falls from a tree outside of the will of your heavenly Father, right? God is involved. 
Um, secondly, we have the encouragement uh, that our waiting is not in vain. Does it not appear frequently in our lives as though God is far off? I, I don't think I'm the only one that can relate to that. This promise, though, shows us that, that he's not far off. He never was and he never will be. And I think it's a legitimate question to ask, where is God? Where is he now? Where, how is he working now? And that's fair to ask. Even scripture asks it. It's something we should wrestle with. But we should remember that it had been a long time since God made this promise. And it came to be. So our waiting is not in vain. There's an 18th century Scottish philosopher named David Hume uh, who came up with this famous argument. And then it basically um, stems from the idea that we're in this world, right, and there is just tragedy and darkness and evil all around. And if there was a good God, there's no way that he would permit this. And so he comes to the conclusion that either God is good and loving, but he's not all-powerful, because if he were, he would do something about it. Uh, or that, that God is all-powerful, uh, and he can do something about it, he just chooses not to because he's not loving. I'm sympathetic to Hume's argument, um, but I think we have uh, good reason for thinking that, that he's off-base. And I think the Messiah changes everything, right? Because Jesus came into the world and he himself suffered. The sovereign Son of God suffered in our place. It cannot be that God is indifferent. What we receive instead from the Bible is that God is working a purpose out. It's largely mysterious. We don't fully get it. But we have it. And we have thousands of years of history to validate that. Psalm 13 even speaks about this reality. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Scripture is not silent on the reality that life is hard. Longing, pining, waiting, suffering is a part of it. But we know this, as the hymn says, God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that shall surely be when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as waters cover the sea. Okay, first point, God works in the world. Second point, how does God work in the world? Um, before I go any further, I just want to say a couple things that may or may not be on your mind and that I think uh, are very important that we address. They're just kind of asides. I think one of the hardest parts about preaching is, is getting the outline in a, an understandable order, and so I couldn't figure out a way to do this other than to make it as an aside. So if you'll just... Step over with me, we'll touch this, and we'll kind of step back into the flow. So, first, it says that Mary was a virgin. We believe that. As a church, we proclaim that, yes, we believe 
that Mary was a virgin and that she miraculously conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah. And I know that that is not a, a popular view and, and it can sound uh, naive, I think, even, uh, well, in our culture, it's, it's not a popular idea. Um, I, I want to give us a little bit of confidence in this assertion that we have. Uh, and the first is that, in general, you might hear a lot of criticisms about miracles. And uh, there's this idea that often gets brought up to me uh, by other people that, that people back then were just very superstitious and they just kind of believed whatever was put in front of them. That they were naive, they were gullible, they were ignorant, they don't understand the things that we understand now about modern science. And so, yeah, it's understandable for those people to buy it, but now that we've been enlightened and that we understand these things, we know that they were either hallucinations or something else. Um, well, first, if that's true, then why does Mary say, how can this be? Right? She, she, this angel comes to her and says, you're going to have the Messiah, Mary. And her first response is perplexity. She's wondering how. God, she was greatly troubled by the statement. How can this be? I'm a virgin. That doesn't make any sense, God. So we see Mary understands, um, and she's skeptical, just like we would be, right? Secondly, there are all kinds of spots in Scripture about this. I think one of the most helpful ones is Doubting Thomas. You remember after the, the resurrection of Jesus, um, he reveals himself to Mary Magdalene and she runs off and tells the disciples and, and they're not really buying it and then Jesus shows up and they're like, oh my gosh. And then the disciples go to Thomas and they say, hey, Jesus is risen. And he's like, okay, you know, not, not quite. You guys are, I understand it's hard what we just went through, but I'm not, I'm not buying it. And then he says what? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. They're no different than us. We don't just simply blindly take these things at face value. We understand that it is a unique intervention into human history. We don't believe in more than one virgin birth. We believe in one because it is an unlikely scenario and it is a miraculous work of God. These, these things, this, this mindset that Doubting Thomas has, uh, it's not an ignorant, superstitious mindset. It's a rational one. And when she says, I've I got to touch Jesus before I believe. And he does, and then he believes. Okay, back to it. How does God work in the world? God works in and through people according to grace. We see this, this nice little phrase towards the top. It's actually sprinkled throughout twice and, and comes at the beginning of the angels greeting to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. There's another spot there where it talks about Mary finding favor with God. Uh, what does it mean to find favor with God? Um, literally translated, it basically means make accepted. It means to be made accepted. It does not mean that Mary lived this good life and that uh, because she stepped the right way here and made this right decision and performed these supernatural works and rubbed some magical rocks together that God was then manipulated into blessing Mary. 
That is what we commonly refer to as religion, and it is not how God operates with the world. It's not how God operates with people. We see the same thing in, in Genesis 6-8, when, when, when God calls out Noah. He says, Noah found favor with God. It simply means that God in his grace moved towards this person to work in their lives. That is how, how God worked in Mary's life, and that's how God works in our lives. And religion tells us that if we get things right, if we live so-called good lives, if we play our cards right, that God will bless us or we'll reach nirvana or we'll reap rewards of a good life upon reincarnation. Um, this is, however, starkly in contrast to the way that the Christian God operates. He says, you've done nothing good, you've done nothing right, you've done nothing to earn favor with me, and I am going to move toward you. And I will burst into your life and in Mary's case, bring a Messiah. In our case, bring general good news into the world because we have received good news of something that God has accomplished on our behalf. God doesn't give us advice. He gives us good news. He works, he accomplishes, and he invites us into this reality. Furthermore, you see in the, in the, in the text that he says to Mary, you will conceive. This is a guaranteed reality that the sovereign God has ordained. You will conceive. The work of God's redemption here on earth is not contingent upon our performance. And praise God that it is not. Because if, you, if it were, we would be doomed. God sovereignly cares for us and moves towards us because of his grace, not because of anything we've done. Okay, so God works in and through people by grace. He also works through lowly people and unexpected circumstances. God frequently, over the course of history, chooses the most unlikely and seemingly ill-equipped people to do his work. Let's look at, at Mary's life real quick. She was most likely illiterate, couldn't read. She was poor, and she was about 12 to 13 years old. Does that sound like the prime candidate to you for bringing the Messiah into the world? This is not contrary, I mean, this is contrary to the way that our minds tend to work. Right? The world values things that God does not necessarily value. Furthermore, not only was she poor, illiterate, and 12, she was in a place called Galilee, which is Nowheresville. It is a podunk town that was... Um, held in very low regard, um, the Jews turned up their noses at it because it was inhabited by Gentiles. Uh, it was you know, a place that we would consider the middle of nowhere. It was overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers, and Jews wanted nothing to do with this place. The religious elites did not look to Galilee as anything wonderful, and in fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, we see in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip is, is found Nathaniel and says to him, Speaking of Jesus, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, Nathaniel's response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, what a place for God to bring the announcement of the birth of the Messiah, right? When thinking about this, I was going to give an example of a real town here, but I thought I might offend some people in case you're from there. Anyways, Nazareth is nothing to write home about. One might have thought that God would go to Judea. 
This is a place where, where uh, God has worked over the, the course of centuries. He might have gone to, uh, Martin Luther says he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter. I don't know if you remember who that is. He's a high priest, uh, well-respected among the religious people. Uh, Luther goes on to say, someone who was fair, rich, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. This pattern is elsewhere in Scripture. You remember Saul and David? Uh, There's the Philistines across the way and the Israelites on one side, and they're about ready to, to have it out, and Goliath is over there, and he's like... 6,000 feet tall and bigger and stronger than everybody else, and he's mocking them. And, and then you see Saul, who's over there with his buddies, and, and Saul was the, the king, the, the, the typified person that you would want in a king, right? It says in the beginning of, of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, that he was as handsome as anyone in the land, and he was a head taller than everybody else. And so Saul is the guy, right? You know, if somebody's going to fight Goliath, it should be Saul. No, what do we get instead? A shepherd boy named David, who's pretty scrawny, who comes over, and he's like, I think I, think I can do it, you know, and put the armor on, and it's way too big, and everybody's like, oh boy. But this is who God chooses to be the king of Israel that leads them to victory. God doesn't operate the way that we typically think he does. He favors the lowly. He chose to reveal the glorious news of his son's own coming into the world to a poor, illiterate, middle school-aged girl in the middle of nowhere. And look, I I just want us to, to understand this because we are bombarded with messages of greatness and success and what glory looks like. And we've got it upside down. I'm, I'm sure you've seen these Facebook videos. Um, one in particular that comes to mind for me is this, this guy. He's like a fitness guru or something. And there's this clip of him in like this incredible mansion. There's helicopter views like soaring over. And shows him by the pool and in this perfectly manicured lawn. And granite countertop kitchen that's probably bigger than most of our houses and I have a feeling that he's selling a little bit more than fitness Um, but this is what the world is selling to us is glorious and good and worth attaining Uh, earthly glory worldly glory possession success greatness esteem make a name for yourself be somebody leave your imprint and the Bible flips that upside down Being a somebody in the world is far different than being a somebody in the king of heaven. God doesn't esteem what the world esteems. He works with the lowly, the unseen, the humble. He greatly dignifies that which the world does not. I don't know if you've ever read The The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Um, It's not intended to be a literal picture of what heaven and hell are like, but the basic premise is that there's the metaphorical depiction of what heaven and hell might be like. And uh, there's this bus that takes people on tours from hell to heaven to kind of see what it's like. And very uh, interesting, fascinating read. Um, and we get a lot of insight just based on Scripture, what Scripture depicts that, that these will be like. And one of my favorite spots is 
This is where this man is on a tour. Um, and, and he sees this radiant woman from afar. She's just beaming. And, and he says, um, is it? Is, is, is that? He whispers to his guide. And then the guide says, not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. The guy responds, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. And he says, ah, yes, she's, she's one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And they, they kind of go on to speak a little bit about children and animals and people that are flocking to this woman. And it says, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe to life. What am I getting at? Well, certainly I'm not saying that all of us have been called uniquely to what Mary has been called to. That is a unique and specific moment of redemptive history that she alone has been called to, and blessed is she for it, and God is gracious for choosing her for that. But if you do follow Jesus, you do play a unique role in redemptive history albeit that's not one that ultimately rests on your shoulders, but it is one that God has invited you into. And the point is that these unseen realities of the Christian life matter. They matter deeply. They seem like they matter not at all. But in the ultimacy of God's narrative, they matter much. The arduous and consistent fighting against temptation, gosh, is it wearying for you? I, I know it is for me. It matters. God sees it. He knows. We struggle to love our neighbors well. We have internal dialogues of defeat that we must continually fight to go to Jesus with. Uh, our unseen generosities, our little moments of kindness that, are, that flow from a gospel-driven heart. These things the world doesn't give a rip about. They're so quiet, they're so undignified to the world, but they are precious and they are meaningful in God's sight. Okay, God works in and through people. He does this by grace. He also does, uh, does his work in and through lowly people and through unexpected circumstances, and he also works through hardship. His favor does not always look like favor. I fear that we have greatly narrowed the term blessing in Scripture to be uh, maybe something that is a little bit closer to the American dream or something similar in which our lives are full of ease and possession and temporary fleeting happiness. But, but let's look. This, this, this text is very clear. It says that Mary is a favored one and the Lord is with her. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like being pregnant out of wedlock in a culture. I, look, if you thought 50 years ago was a big deal for that to happen, first century Jewish culture would have been a much bigger deal. So Mary is blessed by God, she's favored by God, and immediately 
it throws her into this conundrum. She's the talk of the town. Everyone thinks so little of her, right? Her fiancé, she's got to go to him and say, hey, look, I know what you're going to think. And, and look, we haven't done the deed, you know, but, but I'm pregnant, and it's because this angel appeared to me. And uh, yeah, so that's where we are. So I don't want you to think I'm running around. Think of the complications that this brought into Mary's life. Thankfully, God graciously reveals himself to Joseph later to say, hey, Mary's telling the truth. And an angel really did appear to her, and she really has conceived. But she would have been rejected and despised by other people. She would have been turned into a complete social outcast. She was disregarded by the world because of her blessing from God. And in your life, in my life, in our lives, we too will face hardship. We will face trial. We will face tribulation. We will suffer. It's a promise to us in Scripture. The promise, though, includes God being with us. It's a glorious reality. And when we face the hardships, how do we generally respond? Um, Why are you torturing me, God? Why are you embarrassing me? Why have you brought this in my life? I don't want to deal with it. Why have you given me this terrible job? Why haven't you given me a job? Lord, what are you doing? Why won't you bless us financially? We're broke. We look at Mary's words and in some sense we see an example from Mary here. I don't want to go too far with it though because it points beyond itself. But but what does she say at the end of this? After she sort of considers what it means for her to have the Messiah, the complications that come into her life. She says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The question we should have is, what gave Mary the power to do this? In the midst of this brokenness and this burden, this rejection, the answer is the one that's inside her womb gave her the power to do that. He was the rescuer that came to save sinners. He was the ultimate servant of the Lord. He was the one who, though he was the son of God, became rejected and despised by men in the ultimate sense, so much so that they crucified him on a cross, and he deserved none of it. We can only come alongside Mary and joyfully proclaim that we too are willing servants of the Lord when we understand that Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, served us. Remember, he he washed feet, he was homeless and poor, he moved into broken scenarios, and he left his perfect kingdom for this crummy one, and he did it all for you and me. He did it to establish a new kingdom. Final point here. What is God doing in the world? Well, he's establishing a new kingdom, a good one an unending one. Let's read verses 32 and 33. It says, He will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
I am so happy to report to you that this is not it. This world, this life, it is not the full story. And I think I would crumble if I had to stand before you and tell you that it was. There is so much more. Unending goodness and unending glory is on the way. Jesus will usher this in and while we wait in the same way that the people of God waited for thousands of years for the Messiah to show up, we relate to them this great cloud of witnesses as Scripture calls it. A few glorious realities that I think will give us slight glimpses into the goodness of this kingdom. Every relationship that you have in heaven will be perfectly harmonious. I don't know about you, but my life has been filled with conflict lately. Um, Co-workers, friends, family, spouse. It's everywhere, all around me. Perhaps you're in the same boat, but I just want to let you know that the most awkward, strained, fractured Christian relationship that you have here on earth will in heaven be so unified and so wonderful that it will make your strongest relationships here look broken. The unity that we will have, of course, between ourselves and God and one another is beyond what we can even imagine. Second, this might be what I'm most excited about, all of your desires in this new kingdom will be perfect. There will never be a time when you have to struggle to honor God. The fight against temptation and sin will be no more. It says that God is going to write His law on our hearts, meaning that every desire you will ever have will be good and God-glorifying and effortless. Everything that you want to do, you can and will do from an overflow of a heart that is so full with God and what He has done for us that goodness will just spill out. It will just flow freely, overflowing, bursting with goodness, all of the time, forevermore. Never will we ever say again, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that. Gone are the days of those struggles when this kingdom is ushered in. Disease will be no more. Death will be no more. It will have finally and completely been swallowed up. Every tear wiped away. Every loss turned into beauty. Every sadness transformed into joy. This is the kingdom that God is going to establish. And maybe you feel it. He hasn't established it yet. We're still here. We wait. We long for it. We pine after it. Much like the people of God did for millennia after the Messiah. We join them. We wait for Christ's return. I encourage you this season to take some time to ponder that reality. And as we wait, as we long, as we struggle, we wait knowing that God is with us, that He's alongside us, that He's cheering us on, giving us grace at every turn, opening our eyes more fully to His goodness, making us slowly but surely like Him. So, as we do every week, I want to close with communion. 
And communion is, is really a twofold reality. It's one in which we look back at the past and we see a Messiah bursting into reality, becoming a human being to rescue the world from darkness. And we see that as he lived his life, he suffered ultimately on a cross in which his body was broken and his blood was spilled to take the wrath of God on himself that you and I deserve. But it's also a look to the future. When we think about, when we ponder, we consider that God will come back again. Jesus Christ will return. And when he does that time, he will establish his kingdom. And it says that we will feast at his table. So as we, as we dip the bread into the cup and eat, we look back and we look forward to this heavenly feast. In the heavenly kingdom, under the rule of the only righteous king, which has no end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your kingdom is a perfect kingdom and that it will have no end. And it will be glorious beyond measure, beyond understanding. May that encourage us now, today, in these times as we lead lives in an imperfect kingdom that is slowly but surely being ushered in. In this season, may we ponder what it is that you've done and what you are going to do. Help us to rest in these realities, not fleeting realities, Lord, that we are so prone to falling prey to, uh, but, but true and good and real and lasting ones that say, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came into the world. He lived and died for us, and he will come again. What a joy, what a hope, what a glory we have to look forward to because of you and your work. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.